We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Raymer for June 20th, 2023. Today, Glorianne Bryant updates us on the second quarter coding clinic. Laurie Johnson reports on the fiscal year 2024 diagnosis codes released on Friday. Tiffany Ferguson covers the social determinants of health. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who actually believes he owns a cat, Chuck Butt. <laughs> yeah, the, the elusive cat. <laughs> Thanks, Mark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 558th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Erica. Erica, welcome back. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone, and I'm glad to be back. Well, it's nice to have you back. You know, as you heard Clark Anthony announce, Gloria Ann Bryant's going to be on our program today. She's going to be talking about the 2023 second quarter coding clinic. Any reaction to that? Well, yes. <laughs> Gloria Ann and I finally met in person at ChiaCon in Palm Springs last week. She took me around, introduced me to everyone, took me out to dinner. and Well, she didn't take me out to dinner, but she invited me out to dinner. <laughs> okay. And uh, took me under her wing. I am very delighted she's on with us today. Oh, that's great. I'm delighted that both of you are here today, kind of virtually, so to speak. So, Erica, what are you going to be talking about during your talkback segment today? This is my last talkback from Actus, and I think uh-huh. our audience is really going to like it. Excellent. Uh, we look forward to your talkback segment. And, folks, we have a lot of news to report. We begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk to Tuesday News Desk. Today, I'm going to talk about the importance of understanding data before you use it. I was recently doing some analysis using cost report data. In a first pass, it looked like hospitals in the United States had made huge profits for the year uh, ended 2021. But in looking deeper, I noticed a few hospitals with net income in 2021 many times larger than in 2020, unreasonably larger, in fact. And in digging, I noticed that these hospitals did not input data correctly into their Medicare cost reports. So it is a common issue when working with large data sets, particularly those that rely on self-reported or manually entered information, to find issues with the data that impact your analysis. So here's a few steps you can take before and after you find issues with data you're using. First is data validation. Implement some data validation rules on your analysis to identify potential errors in the data. This could be as simple as looking for values that are several standard deviations away from the mean or comparing changes in net income year over year and flagging those that exceed a certain threshold. Contact the data source. So if the data comes from a specific provider like a government agency, uh, CMS in this case, or a private company, you might want to reach out to them to notify them of potential errors. They may be able to correct the issue at the source or at least provide you with more accurate data. In this case, it meant mentioning the issue to CMS. Next is cleaning your data. So depending on the nature and scale of inaccuracies, you might be able to correct them yourself. If it's just a few outliers, you may be able to replace them with more reasonable estimates. If it's a systemic issue, you might need to apply some kind of transformation to the data to account for it. Next is something called sensitivity analysis. In some cases, you might want to run your analysis both with and without the questionable data to see how much it affects your final results. This can give you a sense of how sensitive your conclusions are to these potential errors. And finally is to disclose uncertainty. This is very important. So finally, when you present your results, be sure to disclose those potential inaccuracies. It's always better to be upfront about the limitations of your analysis than to overstate your confidence in the results. Remember that the goal of data analysis is is not to produce perfect data, but to make the best possible use of the information available. By being diligent and transparent in your work, you can help ensure that your conclusions are reliable and useful as possible. 
and always tell anyone that you provided data analysis how you got the data and whether you had to adjust the data. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Wow. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert, and he's also the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. Thanks again, Tim. It's Tuesday. It's June 20th, and you're listening to the 558th Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. If you're having trouble reporting evaluation and management services, CNM, you're not alone. Learn everything you need to know about ENM coding during an upcoming webcast. This expert guided webcast will showcase tips for providers to ensure appropriate capture of the work performed for a visit. Comprehensive examples will demonstrate documentation gaps and how to educate providers on the documentation necessary to appropriately assign a level of service. You will gain clarification on answers regarding emergency department and urgent care coding circumstances as well as a review of how and when it's appropriate to code for ENM in radiology and more. The webcast is tomorrow, June 21st. Register now to attend. Now's the time for the coding report with Lori Johnson, and Lori has some breaking news. Lori, it's all yours. Okay, thank you very much. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. As promised, I am discussing the fiscal year 24 ICD-10 CM codes, which were released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC as we know them, on Friday, June 16th. This release has 395 additions, 25 deletions, and 13 revisions. This version will be effective October 1st, 2023 discharges or visits. The total ICD-10-CM codes is now 74,044. Um, we're showing the URL if you're looking to go to those files on the screen. The chapter with the largest update is Chapter 20, which is external cause of causes of morbidity, with 123 new codes. The expansion in this chapter is regarding foreign bodies including button batteries, other batteries, plastic objects, glass items, magnetic metal objects, non-magnetic things, rubber bands, food and non-organic items, and sharp objects entering into or through a natural orifice. The diseases of musculoskeletal system has the second most changes with 36 additions age-related and other types of osteoporosis with the sites of left, right, and unspecified parts of the pelvis are the topics of these changes. Diseases of the eyes has 34 additions and one deletion. The new codes include non-proliferative or proliferative sickle cell retinopathy, specific eye muscle entrapment, and foreign body sensation, um, also are included in these changes. Also, the changes include laterality. The fourth, the fourth most changes can be found in Chapter 21, Factors Influencing Health Status and Contact with Health Services, with 30 additions and six deletions. The deletions are due to expanded codes. The new codes included... Um, an expanded observation of newborn for suspected conditions rolled out, carrier of Accidinobacter bomani bacteria, encounter for prophylactic measures, 
family history of specified types of colon polyps and caregivers non-compliance type. Social determinants of health, SDOH, have also increased with new codes for child custody and parent or adult child conflict. There are more details in my article posted on ICD10Monitor.com, and it was posted yesterday. The new code topics can be found in materials for the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meetings in March and September 2022. The presentations, recordings, and meeting materials can be found on the CDC website. The ICD-10 guideline changes were not released with the new codes. That document is a coming attraction. The guideline changes and new code details will be discussed during my webinar on August 15th, 2023. Erica, I am anxiously awaiting for the new guideline changes. I am too. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Erica, thank you very much. And Lori Johnson, thank you again. Be sure to read Lori's excellent article on the breaking news about the ICD-10 diagnosis codes. Those were released on Friday. Here now with a report on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson. And good morning, Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, all. Good morning, Chuck. Today, I'm going to talk about how are we hospitals over consulting physical therapy? Maybe. So let's discuss it. So a regular comment I hear from the hospitalist medicine and case management is we are waiting on PT consults or we are waiting on PT to document their recommendations. Physical therapists have experienced many of the same discharge or same shortages since the pandemic with clinicians exiting the hospital setting and many going into alternative work environments for improved for improved work life balance. Many hospitals have had to utilize contract labor for or physical therapy associates assistants PTAs for the majority of patient therapy needs due to the limited PTs stretched across inpatient and outpatient hospital-based services to evaluate and treat patients. There are just not enough therapists to meet the demand. However, is such a demand required? Rather than increasing the labor costs, should hospitals be asking themselves, are we over-consulting PT? And is this leading to a delay in patient progression of care, not to mention unrealistic referrals for post-acute care? In 2021, the topic was reported by Society of Hospital Medicine, which found that 38% of physical therapy consults were identified as potentially inappropriate. It is a well-known practice that hospitals place consults upon admission for PT and occupational therapy, OT, for early assessment and intervention for patients to assess mobility and post-discharge needs, even when there is not necessarily medical necessity for such consults. Once PT and OT are not able consulted, they're not able to delete the inappropriate order and instead will at least complete an initial assessment for the patient to assess their functional and mobility status. One thing I wonder is if the metric and strong emphasis in hospitals on fall prevention across nursing disciplines and quality departments has created an unintended consequence for our patients and therapists. I see large signs that promote how many days units are free from patient falls, 
Patients that have a fall have a quality report and often a safety risk report filed. Although this is an important process, it can still seem quietly punitive on the nursing unit or the nurse whose patient fell under their watch. The easiest way to avoid negative impact of patient falls is to keep the patients in bed. In 2019, KFF News and the Washington Post ran an article warning of this exact issue, fear of falling, how hospitals do even more harm by keeping patients in bed. As if the title wasn't poignant enough, they go on to discuss hospitals have become overzealous in fall prevention, that they are producing an epidemic of immobility. To identify a patient's fall risk, we see patients receiving PT and OT consults for safety and mobility assessments. Then the mobility of the patient, unless independently ambulating, is up with the PTA to to see the patient daily and get the patient moving. Instead of mobility and walking in between consults, nursing units are placing bed alarms on the patients. From the hospital throughput process, the overutilization of PT consults creates a large delay, especially for patients under outpatient with observation services, who are expected to have a quick turnaround, but are now delayed for mobility assessments, regardless if this is a contributing factor to their need for hospital observation services. The result of this consultation is then exacerbated if the therapy assessment recommends post-acute placement, triggering further delays for case management, planning, and arrangements. I go on on this topic in my article out this week. Make sure to check that out on ICD-10. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Tiff. I think the only thing worse than over-consulting PTOT is leaving patients just lying around in bed or in a chair for the entire stay. So thank you, Tiffany, for bringing that to our attention. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management. Reviewing the American Hospital Association's ICD-10 CMPCS quarterly coding clinic guidance is vital to ensure appropriate and correct assignment of codes. Each quarter, the AHA examines outstanding coding issues, new procedures, and technology and provides updates to previous coding guidance. Having an expert to help make sense of the guidance, putting it into real-world examples, can help coding professionals fully master current requirements and guidelines. Now backed by popular demand, ICD-10 Monitor is offering an exclusive on-demand webcast that will review important information released in the first quarter of the 2023 AHA ICD-10 CMPCS Coding Clinic. Nationally respected HIM coding professional Glorian Bryant will review and report on the guidance published, so you are up to date with compliant coding guidelines. Register to listen now at the ICD University Bookstore. Speaking of the coding clinic and Glorian Bryant here now, use the aforementioned Glorian Bryant with a report on the second quarter coding clinic. Good morning, Glorian. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. And hello to everyone out there. And great to be with you. Yes, the second quarter AHA Coding Clinic for ICD-10-CM and PCS is out. Contains about, I counted up, 24 diagnosis topics via Q&A and 13 PCS 
Q&A. That's the inpatient coding question section. All of this within a total of 34 pages of official instructions. And I'll mention a few of the topics with you today to help enhance coding accuracy and compliance. Always go to the full narrative content of the coding clinic and read it over. It's very, very important. So um, with the end to the public health emergency, in this issue of coding clinic, there is some instruction around COVID screening. And we will continue to code or assign the ICD-10-CM Z2822, which represents contact with and suspected exposure to COVID-19 for screening that are performed after May 11th, 2023. And then beginning October, so not now, but coming up in the fall, we will follow a revision to this guidance for screening. Thus on or after October 1st, 2023, so in the fall when we get all the new codes announced, Z1152 encounter for screening will be used. And I know this, this can be a little bit confusing, the dates that we're referring to. So that's why it's very important to read through this guidance and really understand it if you're using the right code. Z2822 now and in the future, Z1152 coming October. Now, also in this issue of Coding Clinic, they discuss mixed hyperlipidemia with hypercholesterolemia and understanding what code to assign in that situation. Now, the guidance talks about E87.2 is the code we would use for this condition. But you need to look carefully at the index, the alpha index, to really start getting the picture of how to code that going first to the word abnormal, findings, abnormal, inclusive, with with the diagnosis, and then you'll find the word high, and then the word cholesterol, and that leads you to high triglycerides or the E87.2. So there is a code to pick up both those conditions together. Now I wanna mention a few PCS things. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to mention non-excisional excisional debridement. I'm always interested in this topic, having worked past in a, in a wound care area in my career. And the guidance here tells us about when both non-excisional and excisional is performed at the same site. And so this guidance is going to be very important for those of you who have this performed at your hospital. It can be performed, obviously, at bedside or in the wound care therapy department. It could be performed even in an, a surgery suite, but usually we'll see this type of excision performed in surgery because it does go down to, in the example, coccyx bone that is soft. And they debris that with a Vera Sejet. And then they see that the patient has now got a um, hard bone remaining. And then they do an excisional debridement around that area as well. So the fact is around the question, well, how do we code both of those in Dewey? The non-excisional debridement was performed at that site. So they're telling us that we would only code the excisional debridement, which is the definitive procedure in that situation, in that scenario. Now, another PCS procedure that they talk about in this issue of Coding Clinic is the control of GI bleeding with hemospray. And this hemospray is a hemostatic powder that is sprayed and used a lot in endoscopy for GI bleeding. 
putting clinic questions surrounds the situation when this is happening. And the physician surgeon uses that spray specifically. And how would that be coded? And the guidance they tell us is that we would code in this situation two different codes in PCS, the introduction of a mineral-based topical hemostatic agent into the upper GI. And then we would also use the code for controlled bleeding in a gastrointestinal tract. And the rationale for that, because you're wondering, well, it seems like it's redundant. The rationale for that is that you need both codes to appropriately capture this method being used of controlling the bleeding using that hemostat. So we would use the introduction at the section X code for introduction of that. And then we would use the zero W3 series of codes for that control bleeding. So there is lots of coding information, coding compliance information and guidance within this quarter publication of Coding Clinic. And I just talked about a few of them because there's lots to, to review. It's all very relevant to our work that we do and very useful. So the Coding Clinic is always a read. You've got to read through it and making sure that your HIM coding and CI professionals do that. Take time to read through the full content. Follow the guidance. And if you have any coding questions of your own, go ahead and go to the AHA Coding Clinic online submission. You can do that and it's free. There is no cost to submit your coding questions. So I will end it there and go back to you, Erica, but everybody have a great day. Thanks, Glorianne. And everyone, my talk back next week is going to be a deeper dive into that COVID screening topic. So make sure you tune in. That was independent HIM authority, Glorianne Bryan. Glorianne is the past president of the California Health Information Association. Now, our very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday is called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. This is my last installment in my debrief about Actus National Conference. Trey LaCharite gave a great talk on trauma service documentation. He explained that CDI and trauma is important because many mortality cases stem from that service that many of the patients don't have prior history with the facility, so comorbidities may not be discoverable in prior encounters. And I pointed out that even if many trauma patients do not have health insurance, they increase the case mix index, which factors into the blended base rate. Trey also mentioned the halo effect, which refers to the wider impact improved um, documentation can have. Surgical residents can take their CDI knowledge to other service lines, and trauma attendings usually also do elective surgeries. Specific advice was that every injury should be documented because you never know what's going to throw that case into the multiple significant trauma MST DRG. I think it is also important because medical necessity for specific tests and procedures often require thoroughness in accounting of all injuries. You don't get a right wrist film for a ruptured spleen. Additionally, he recommended documenting the separate Glasgow Coma Score components, and this could be an electronic solution with a section in a trauma template. He pointed out that importance of appropriate he, sorry he pointed out the importance of um, appropriately grading all solid organ injuries. 
He stressed that it's vital to specify the type of shock. Words matter. Midline shift and mass effect need to be translated into brain compression. Tear indexes to laceration, but the word rent does not. Providers need to ascribe, not describe. Why is the kidney function abnormal? Why are the liver enzymes elevated? Why are you administering blood products? He discussed airway protection. My contribution here is that airways may need to be protected from blood, secretions, vomitus, redundant or swollen tissue, or foreign bodies. Airway protection is a proactive action. You are anticipating a problem. Once you've cleared a path from the outside to the inside for airway protection, you shouldn't really need to ventilate or oxygenate. If you need to do so, then you likely have some degree of respiratory failure. He offered surgeons verbiage of intubated for impending respiratory failure. I objected to the word impending. The official guidelines discuss impending. If there is a sub-entry term for impending or threatened, then you can code that. If there is not, you need to determine if the condition really occurred or not. You code the condition if it developed, or you code signs, symptoms, or other established conditions if the impending condition did not develop. There is no code for impending respiratory failure or impending sepsis. If a patient is not exchanging air because there is airway obstruction or a severely decreased respiratory rate, you have respiratory failure. You needn't wait to draw blood gas to prove development of hypoxemia and or hypercapnia. My suggestions for verbiage would be something like acute respiratory failure due to neurologic depression from traumatic brain injury, intubated for acute respiratory failure due to hypoventilation from opioid overdose. If the provider does have knowledge of which type of respiratory failure it is, hypoxic or hypercapnic or both, they can add that detail. The surgeons need to understand that acute respiratory failure has a huge impact on severity of illness and risk of mortality scores, and that it does not have to be on the basis of a pulmonary derangement. It is beneficial to educate the advanced practice practitioners in addition to the residents, because they often do the lion's share of the documenting. There are various ways by which education can be provided, lunch and learns, flyers or posters, emailing documentation tips of the week, or elbow rounds. But Trey's experience was similar to mine when I was a a physician advisor. He found that participating in trauma, morbidity, mortality review conferences was the best bang for his buck. There is usually great attendance, and you can point out how the performance metrics could have been impacted. I hope you learned something from what I got out of Actus this year. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. And folks, that is going to be a wrap for our live edition. It's our 558th live edition. Dr. Tuesday, and I want to thank our panelists today, Tiffany Ferguson, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, Gloria Ann Bryan, who reported our lead story on the 2023 second quarter coding clinic. And of course, a very special thank you to my dear friend, Dr. Erica Reamer, who co-hosts these broadcasts every Tuesday. Thanks, Erica. And remember, when you can't listen to us live, you can always listen to us on 
Stitcher, Apple, Spotify. And when you do, rate us, give us a review. And one more thing before we go, uh, never miss a Talked In Tuesday again. Simply visit ICD10Monitor.com forward slash podcast and join our community. Until we meet again next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD10 Monitor and Talked In Tuesday. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.